welcome to the first in a series of lockdown podcasts from the Aquinas Institute this term. We've been putting audio from our events up for some time now, and although the Institute didn't have many special lectures planned for this term, in these strange times we thought it might be a good thing to offer some intellectual resources, as well as all of the spiritual resources which Blackfriars is currently offering. These podcasts will be short talks on St Thomas, but also on other theological topics, and hopefully through the magic of technology from people both inside and outside of Blackfriars. So we kick off with Father Richard Conrad, director of the Aquinas Institute, on how the resurrection saves us. This is recorded during the Easter octave, so it's appropriate to reflect on the saving power of Christ's resurrection with the help of scripture and St Thomas Aquinas. But I'd like to locate what I say in a rather bigger context. This is Paschal time, as we call it in the Church, and the prefaces for the Mass of Paschal time speak of this as the time cum pascha nostrum immolatus est Christus, the time when Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. We celebrate in this time Christ's sacrifice, not just his resurrection, but his sacrifice and his resurrection as victory over Satan, sin and death. And indeed the Easter Vigil is an older celebration, a very primitive celebration, which was there in the church before the liturgy of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday was developed, perhaps in the fourth century, or maybe slightly earlier. And the Easter Vigil celebrates the whole Paschal mystery, Christ passing over through suffering and death to resurrection. That's indicated not just by the preface of Easter, but also by the reading of Abraham's sacrifice at the Easter Vigil and before Pius XII of the institution of the Passover. So we're looking at what St Thomas has to say chiefly in the Tertia part of the summer, but there he covers the Incarnation, Christ's converse, with the people he came to save, his passion, death, descent into hell, his resurrection and ascension, and his return as judge. And then the Tertia Pars goes on to explore how the sacraments bring the power of all of that, but especially Christ's passion, home to us where we are. And St Thomas brings out some features of how the whole of those mysteries save us and some particular things which apply to Christ's passion, death and resurrection, some that apply specifically to his passion, some specifically to his resurrection. And very near the beginning of his treatise, in Tertia Pars Question 1, Article 2, on the fittingness of the Incarnation, he points out that there are many advantages to the Incarnation 
which are beyond the human mind to fathom. That must be true of everything in the Tertia Pars, including Christ's Passion and Resurrection. There was something of a complaint in the 1960s and 70s when I was growing up that there'd been an excessive tendency in the Catholic Church to focus on Christ's passion and death and that complaint about an excessive focus on Christ's passion led, I think, to the title of the National Pastoral Congress in 1980, The Easter People. And in some sense, that complaint about a focus on Christ's passion was misplaced. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, St Paul tells us, or tells the Corinthians, he wanted to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And of course, the four Gospels all devote a huge proportion of their text to Christ's passion. The New Testament insists that we should give full weight to Christ's passion and its saving power. And in line with that, St Thomas rightly devotes a great deal of the Tertia Pars, a large chunk of it, to how Christ's passion saves us bringing together many models and concepts to help us fathom, to some extent, what is beyond our full comprehension. So in Tertia Pars, question 48, he speaks of Christ's passion meriting for us, satisfying for sin, it is sacrifice and redemption, and instrumental efficient cause. We'll have to come back to that. But he has spoken earlier in the Tertia Pars about how Christ, Christ's passion saves us. In question 46, his passion was the best way to save us in lots of ways including being an example of many virtues. Earlier, in question 22, Christ is priest and sacrifice. In questions 23 and 24, he's the exemplar for our adoption as God's children and the exemplar for our predestination. And in question 26, he is the mediator. A lot of stuff has to come together to gain some purchase on Christ's passion. In another sense, that focus in the 1960s and 70s on Jesus' resurrection was a useful reminder that the New Testament is very struck by Christ risen from the dead. Christ's resurrection emboldens the apostles to speak the good news. 
it is part of the heart of the primitive Christian message. So we need to explore the saving power of Christ's resurrection. It's not just a kind of afterthought after the real saving passion. It's not just the icing on the cake. Christ's resurrection doesn't just vindicate his claims and validate what went before. It does something. It has saving power. There's a danger in focusing just on one model or concept for how Christ's passion saves us. And there's a danger in narrowing our view of salvation as simply making satisfaction for an offence against God that needs to be satisfied for. We need to locate our understanding of salvation within a bigger picture. Our goal is eternal communion with the Holy Trinity. Prima Pars 43 explains how each of Father, Son and Spirit wishes to give himself to us, to be known and loved, possessed and enjoyed, now and forever. And question 93 says that the goal of the creation of the human being is that we should be in the image and likeness of God. And the question explains that the image of God, which we are by nature, grows to its full stature as we come actively to know and love God now and more fully in the life of glory. So we have to journey into an eternal communion with the Holy Trinity, and that is something supernatural, not in the sense of spooky, but in the sense of truly divine. We have a divine goal which goes beyond natural human resources. Whether or no there were sin, we would need divine resources to journey into a divine goal. That's mentioned in Prima Secunde 62, where we need the God-given strengths of faith, hope and charity. And then in question 110, <coughs> we need what we sometimes call sanctifying grace, gratia gratum faciens, the gift that makes us, so to speak, gracious, graceful and grateful. It's that share in the divine nature that St Peter speaks of in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 4. It's the grace of being adopted as God the Father's beloved children, adopted in Christ, sharing Christ's own divine sonship. We are lifted up above the merely natural to live at a divine, a supernatural level, able to do divine things, not small things like levitating or moving mountains, but big things like saying the creed and meaning it, 
are so having a glimpse of the mind of God. Saying the Our Father and meaning it, and so sharing in Jesus' own address to his Abba, caring for those we are given to care for with a divine, not merely a human love, forgiving our enemies, being channels of God's reconciliation. And Prima Secunde 110 explores how this divinizing grace is rooted in the depths of our being and, so to speak, comes to the surface in faith, hope and charity and in the gifts of the Holy Spirit like wisdom and these take flesh in the fabric of Christian living. And this grace, this sanctifying grace, this divinizing grace, was necessary independently of sin. So Prima Pars Question 95, Article 4, Ad Primum, says that after sin we need grace for more things than before sin, but we don't need it more. It was always needed to lift us up to the divine level. Now grace is also needed for healing and justifying. So grace was needed, in fact grace was given to the first human beings before the fall. St Thomas rather suggests that probably if there had been no sin, there'd be no need for the incarnation or the sacraments. Grace would have come by a kind of more direct route, so to speak. That's Tertiapar's question 1, article 3, question 61, article 2. But as it is, grace fittingly comes through the incarnate Christ, crucified and risen, and it empowers us to fight against evil. And this life of grace has the power to grow into the life of glory. Prima Secunde, question 5, article 7, points out that it suits human nature to journey to beatitude, to bliss, to glory, through a pilgrimage in time. So we need, I think, to focus not just on Christ making reparation for sin, but on what you might call the more positive aspects of salvation, which is basically the work of grace. And in Prima Secunde, question 113, on justification, Article 8 points out that the influx of grace, which of course comes with charity, the influx of grace that makes us what St Paul calls a new creation, that comes first in God's justifying work. Because God pours grace into us, therefore the human will 
turns towards God in love, in charity, and for that reason it turns against sin in perfect contrition. And in that way, sin is remitted, not merely overlooked, but overcome, undone. So we need to explore a great deal about Christ's passion, death and resurrection and have more than one model, if you like, more than one concept for how Christ's passion saves us. The first concept that St Thomas looks at in Tertia Pars 48 and the one that he mentions for example, in question 56, article 2, add 4, as one of the extra things Christ's Passion adds, one of the concepts that St Thomas is interested in is Christ's Passion meriting. Christ's Passion, the greatness of his suffering, and even more the greatness of the love out of which he suffered, deserves a reward, and the reward Christ wants is our salvation, the gift of grace. The concept of merit for St Thomas only applies up to Christ's moment of dying. While anyone is on pilgrimage, merit is possible once the pilgrimage is finished. Merit is no longer possible. So in Tertiapar's Question 50, Article 6, St Thomas points out that once Christ has died, he no longer merits our salvation. And so we can't apply the concept of merit to the resurrection. We do to Christ's life and passion. But St Thomas gives us some extremely important and valuable concepts to help us understand the saving power of Christ's life, passion, death and resurrection. All the mysteries of salvation. And we can start by reminding ourselves what St John says in the prologue to his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 16. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, full of grace and of truth, and from his fullness have we all received. So one important concept that we find in St Thomas is the concept of the grace of Christ. That's explored in Tertiapar's questions 7 and 8. Christ's human soul is a real human soul, and by nature it is human. So it has to be divinised by grace. And St Thomas explores eloquently how Christ's human soul, from the moment of his conception, is endowed with grace in a supreme degree. He is full of grace and truth to the extent that
that from him grace can, so to speak, overflow to others. Because Christ's soul, like his body, is joined to the divine nature in the hypostatic union, in the incarnation, it is open to an especially powerful influx of the share of the divine nature. The more closely something receptive approaches the cause it influences it, St Thomas says in that question seven, the more closely something approaches the cause it influences it, the more abundantly it receives. And so Christ's soul, which among all rational creatures is the most closely joined to God, most intensely receives the influx of his grace. For Christ's soul received grace in this way, so that in a certain way grace could be poured through it to others. And in the next question, question eight, in Christ's soul, grace was received in the most eminent way. So from the eminence of the grace that he received, it belongs to him that grace should flow on to others. This belongs to what characterises a head. So Christ is the head of the body, the church. He has grace, the same kind of sanctifying grace that we need, but he has it in a supreme degree. And grace, so to speak, flows from him to all humanity that receives it. And that idea of grace overflowing from Christ to us ties in with St Thomas' account of Christ's humanity, passion, death and resurrection as the instrumental efficient cause of our salvation. St Thomas, following Aristotle, recognises four causes if so, you want to explain something like a statue of Queen Victoria, you have to mention the material cause, the stuff it's made of, like bronze or marble. You have to mention the formal cause, in this case, the shape that makes it Queen Victoria rather than Disraeli. You have to mention the efficient, the making cause, that's the agent, the sculptor, and the tools that she uses, her hands and the hammer and chisel or whatever. So there's the agent cause, the instruments that are part of or joined to the agent, like her hands, and the external instruments like the hammer and chisel. And there's the final cause, the purpose, the goal that drew the making process. Like wanting to please Queen Victoria. And of course that applies then 
to our salvation. We are the matter, fallen humanity is the matter on which God works. The formal cause, in one sense, is the grace that makes us children of God and grows into a share in God's own glory. The final cause is God's purpose that we should share and reflect his glory. And the efficient cause is God. Using the humanity of Christ, which is a kind of conjoint instrument, analogous to the sculptor's hands, and then the sacraments as instruments taken up from outside. So following St John of Damascus and earlier Greek fathers, St Thomas sees Jesus's humanity and all that he did and suffered as a conjoint instrument, an instrumental efficient cause, a kind of channel of God's saving work and power into the world. He also recognises the exemplar cause. In the analogy of the statue of Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria herself is the exemplar, the original on whom the statue is patterned. And that's an important extra dimension of causation in St. Thomas's understanding. And we'll come back to that a bit later. So God's saving power flows from God into Christ's humanity with all that he did and suffered and from there to all who receive his causal influence. So in Prima Secundae 112, on the causes of, of grace, St Thomas says Christ's humanity is like a certain instrument of his divinity, as St John of Damascus says. Christ's humanity does not cause grace by its own power, but by the power of the conjoined divinity, which renders the acts of Christ's humanity saving. And just as Christ's humanity, belonging to his very person, causes our salvation by gracing us, and the principal worker in this is the divine power, so also in the sacraments of the new law, which derive from Christ, grace is caused by the sacraments themselves, instrumentally, but principally by the power of the Holy Spirit, who works in the sacraments. And St Thomas repeats that idea in Tertia Pars 48, Article 6. There are two kinds of efficient cause, principal and instrumental. God indeed is the principal efficient cause of human salvation. But since Christ's humanity is an instrument of his divinity, it follows that all Christ's actions and sufferings operate instrumentally in the power of his divinity for human salvation. The divine power flows through Christ's passion, death and resurrection and all the rest, 
as far as God wants and intends. It may be difficult to picture a mechanism for this, but of course it's difficult to picture or at least explain the mechanism of even normal causal events. If you want to explain how I write on the whiteboard, in one sense it's easy to see how a human being can write and it's useful to use my hand to grasp a whiteboard marker to get the writing where it has to be. Likewise, God causes grace and salvation and Christ's passion in particular and his resurrection are a fitting channel of that power and so are the sacraments. In another sense, to explain how the marking gets onto the whiteboard, you'd have to write long treatises on how my plan to write translates into brain waves and the nerves affect the muscles in my fingers. You'd have to explain how the chemical composition of the ink allows it to absorb certain wavelengths of light and so on. It would take a shelf of books to explain something that simple. So we shouldn't be too surprised if we can see, in one sense, with the light of faith, that Christ's passion and resurrection save us. In another sense, there's something a bit mysterious about what is going on. We have to remember that the grace which is caused by Christ's life, passion, death and resurrection is the grace of the Holy Spirit, as St Thomas calls it in Prima Secundae 106. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises that he and his Father and the Holy Spirit will make their home in us. But there seems to be something special about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And St Thomas would say that each of Father, Son and Spirit abides within us. If they abide, they abide inseparably. But still there is something special about the coming of the Holy Spirit because by charity we are conformed to the Holy Spirit who is the divine love in person and it is his gifts explored in Primus Secundae 68 that make us receptive, attentive, attuned to his personal guidance as a friend or as an apprentice to the mentor. Grace enlarges our hearts, to take a phrase from Psalm 119, verse 32. Grace empowers us to love nothing less than the infinite God, to embrace God by love and to begin by faith, now and in vision after, to know God as he is. And when God graces us, we become temples of God with the Holy Spirit abiding within us. 
as in 1 Corinthians 3.16. And scripture presents Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension as obtaining for us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in John 16, 7, Jesus explains that he has to go away if the paraclete is to come. He goes away through his passion, death, resurrection and ascension. And that will obtain the gift of the Holy Spirit. St. John Paul II explored in Dominum et Vivificantem paragraph 6 to 25, how the Holy Spirit comes as the result of Jesus' sacrifice. And St John tells us that the autumn before he died, this is in chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, Jesus had said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and let him drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, out of his womb shall flow rivers of living water. And John adds, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who came to faith in him were to receive, and predicts that the Spirit was to be given when Jesus was glorified. But the moment of glory is when Jesus is raised up on the cross. And St John tells us in chapter 19, verse 30, that when Jesus died, he bowed his head and paradoken top pneuma, literally, he handed over the spirit. And John insists that he saw blood and water which in biblical idiom means living water, flow from Christ's side, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that rivers of living water should flow out from him, as from the rock that was struck in the desert, and so on, and that living water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' sacrifice obtains the gift of the Holy Spirit, but then so does his resurrection. In chapter 20, verses 21 to 22, Jesus appears to his disciples and breathes on them, saying, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 2.33, St. Peter explains that having ascended into heaven, Jesus has poured out the gift of the Spirit on the Church in a public dramatic way at Pentecost. And Ephesians 4 explains how ascending above the heavens, Christ has bestowed the Holy Spirit as he, in a sense, comes back to fill all things, and as the Spirit crafts us into Christ's body. So in line with that scriptural data, St. Thomas presents Jesus' passion, death, resurrection, 
and ascension as the instrumental efficient cause of grace. The grace of the Holy Spirit is given to us through Christ and especially through his passion and resurrection. So, Tertia Pass, question 48, article 6, and question 56. And then Thomas says something special about Christ's resurrection. In question 56, article 1, Christ's resurrection is the instrumental efficient cause of the final resurrection of all humanity on the last day. That, of course, is what St. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, where Christ has to be raised so that the dead may be raised. And Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. And, of course, that's the Jewish idiom. The barley harvest took place at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at Passover time in Palestine in those days and according to Old Testament law the high priest has to wave the first sheaf of the harvest in the temple so that the harvest may begin. In fact the procession of the equinoxes had meant that by the day after the Sabbath in the week of unleavened bread, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, the high priest would wave the first fruits, the first sheaf, but they would in fact have got the harvest in already and would be there in the shops. And as soon as they called out that the high priest had waved the first sheaf, they could start selling the grain. But the first fruits waved in the temple allows the harvest to happen, basically. Christ's resurrection enables the dead to rise. And of course, human beings need to rise from the dead if human beings are to be saved. A human soul is not a whole human being. If God is to save human beings, the dead must rise. So Jesus' resurrection is not just a vindication of his ministry and sacrifice, <coughs> a vindication of his teaching and claims. It's not just a promise that the resurrection will happen it is the cause of the final resurrection. So in Tertiapar's question 55, article 1, St Thomas says, The natural order put into things by God goes like this. Any cause first acts upon what is closest to itself, and through it acts upon what is more remote, rather as fire first warms the bronze close to it, and through the bronze it warms distant objects. He's thinking of things like bed warmers, I guess. 
and so the word of God firstly bestows immortal life on the body naturally united to him and through it effects the resurrection of all others. Christ's resurrection is the instrumental efficient cause of the resurrection of all humanity. But there's something even more important in a way. Christ's resurrection is the cause of the life of grace that grows into the life of glory. As St John implies, Christ's resurrection is part of the channel that brings us the grace of the Holy Spirit. So in Article 2 of that question, question 56, not 55 as I just said, Christ's resurrection acts in the power of the Godhead. This indeed extends not just to the resurrection of bodies, but also to the resurrection of souls. By that, St Thomas means the return to the life of grace after the death of sin. It comes from God, both that the soul lives by grace and that the body lives by the soul. And so Christ's resurrection has an instrumental efficient power not only with respect to the resurrection of bodies, but also with respect to the resurrection of souls. Christ's resurrection is the channel of the coming of the life of grace to the soul after the death of original sin and after the death of mortal sin. Christ's resurrection brings us the justifying, divinizing gift of the Holy Spirit. And that leads on to a second concept, that concept of exemplar causality, which I mentioned. Christ's resurrection is the efficient cause of the resurrection from the dead of all human beings, but Christ's resurrection to glory is the exemplar cause, the kind of prototype or blueprint for the resurrection to glory of all those who are saved. So again, in Tertiopar's 56, question one, and tertium, Christ's resurrection is the exemplar cause of our resurrection. This is, of course, not necessary on the part of the one who raises, who has no need of an exemplar, but on the part of those who are raised, since it befits them to be conformed to his resurrection. As Philippians 3.21 says, he will reform the body of our lowliness, configuring it to the body of his glory. But while the efficient causality of Christ's resurrection extends to the resurrection of both the good and the wicked, 
its exemplar causality properly extends only to the good, who have been conformed to his sonship, as Romans 8.29 says. So we have that notion of the exemplar cause. And exactly what the exemplar cause is has puzzled Thomist scholars to some extent. In Plato, the exemplars are the ideas which simply exist there in a spiritual realm. In his creation story, the Timaeus, the Demiurgos, the craftsman god, consults the pre-existing ideas as he crafts the cosmos. For Christian Platonists, the exemplars are the ideas in God's own mind, and St Thomas explores that in Prima Pars question 15. And that's enough, of course, for God to create and to save. He doesn't need to consult anything outside himself. He is like the great architect or artist who conceives beforehand what he will craft in all its beauty. But it's part of the way that the world works that creatures need exemplars, like the statue of Queen Victoria needs either the Queen herself to sit there for the sculptor to work, or for the sculptor to have at least some mental picture of Queen Victoria. And we have to be conformed to Christ in his risen glory. And so Christ is the exemplar cause. Not just the exemplar cause of glory, but the exemplar cause of grace. There is scriptural data for Christ as the exemplar cause. In the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation so to speak, the trailblazer who opens a way for us to follow. He is the high priest who has gone into the inner sanctum, heaven, the presence of God, on our behalf so that we can go with him. In John chapter 10, Jesus is the shepherd who leads his flock and that idea is there in the prefaces for the ascension. And Jesus himself claims to be the way as well as the truth and the life. That struck St Augustine and St Thomas at the beginning of the Tertia Pars in the prologue. St Thomas speaks of Jesus who as man is the way for us to journey to God. So Jesus goes ahead of us through death to resurrection, which isn't coming back to the old life. Lazarus came back to the old life and they had to unbind him and let him go. They had to move the stone so he could come out. Jesus went ahead into a new and higher life as the prototype, the pioneer, etc., 
and the stone was moved to show that he had gone already, and Jean could see from the way the grave clothes lay that they hadn't been moved by a grave robber, but Jesus had just gone. His risen body is not confined the way a mortal body is. So Jesus's resurrection is the pattern of the future glory we hope to share, but he's not just that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, 17, St Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins if Christ has not been raised. Christ's resurrection frees us from sin. And Romans 6 explores how, beginning in baptism, we die to sin with Christ and rise with him to walk in newness of life. There's an ongoing conformity to Christ, starting in the sacrament of baptism, when we are buried and rise with Christ and we keep on dying to sin in the power of his own dying and we keep on striving to walk in newness of life in the power of his own rising and then in chapter 8 we find that if we have been conformed to him in his sacrifice we will inherit the glory that is his and therefore ours as fellow heirs with Christ. And St Thomas was especially struck by what St Paul says slightly earlier in Romans 4.25. Christ was put to death for our sins and raised for our justification. Raised to bring the new life of grace. So Christ's passion, death and resurrection are together the instrumental efficient cause of grace. But we can bring in the concept of exemplar causality and not just apply it to our physical dying and rising, but in a more subtle and in a sense a more powerful way to the dying to sin and rising to the life of grace. Our souls are brought truly alive after original sin and mortal sin in the power of Christ's resurrection through which we receive justifying, elevating grace. And that launches that process of continuing to be conformed to Christ's passion by our penance and mortification and live in the freedom of his resurrection. And Prima Secundae 113, Article 9, points out that, in a way, the work of justification 
bringing the soul to life by grace, is the greatest thing God ever does. The work of creation brings beings into existence with their natural existence. The work of grace makes the creature truly divine, and that's a greater leap from being natural to being supernatural. And then the resurrection to glory at the end of time might be great, but is much more smooth. Grace has the power to grow into glory. Making us a new creation by grace is God's greatest work. And Christ's resurrection is the exemplar cause of that new life of grace. So, Tertiapar's question 56, article 2, add 4. In the justification of the unrighteous, two things come together, the remission of fault and the newness of life through grace. As far as efficient causality is concerned, which derive from the divine power, both Christ's passion and his resurrection cause our justification under both aspects. But as far as exemplar causality is concerned, Christ's passion and death are the cause of the remission of fault, for by this remission we die to sin. Christ's resurrection is the cause of the newness of life, which comes through grace or justice. And so the Apostle says that he was handed over, that is, to death, for our sins, that is, so as to take them away, and he rose for our justification, Romans 4.25. But Christ's passion is also a meritorious cause, as we said earlier. So Christ's resurrection is not just an optional extra, is not even just a vindication of Christ's claims. Christ's resurrection is, most importantly, the cause of the new life of grace. It is the instrumental efficient cause with everything else in Christ's humanity, his human grace and all that he did and suffered, but in a particular way, the resurrection is the exemplar cause of the life of grace. And that life of grace has a power to grow into the life of glory. And Christ's resurrection is the instrumental and exemplar cause of the resurrection to glory in the bodies of the saints. So there were quite a few bits of evidence to point to the fact that the resurrection really happened. The tomb was empty and Christ appeared to his apostles to speak with them and even to be touched by them. And really nothing else makes sense of the bits of evidence we have. But even if we are convinced that Christ's resurrection 
happened, there is much more that we have to believe that we can't prove, but we accept on the authority of Jesus, who was vindicated by his resurrection. What we need to believe is that Christ's resurrection has the power to raise all humanity to life at the end of time. And we have to believe that Christ's resurrection has the power to raise souls from death to the life of grace that grows into the life of glory. And we may hope securely that Christ's resurrection will extend that, has extended that power to us and will continue to do so, so that we may die in grace and rise in glory. I'd like to end with a medieval Dominican blessing. May God the Father bless us, may God the Son heal us, may God the Holy Spirit enlighten us and give us eyes to see with, ears to hear with, and hands to do God's work with, feet with which to walk God's ways, and a mouth with which to speak God's saving love. Sent to befriend us, may he watch over us, and guide us to the Father's kingdom. Amen.